This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 440. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. And uh, if you're noticing that my voice has a sexy, husky, very white tone to it, it's because I'm uh, fighting a little bit of a of a cold here as we head into fall in New York City. But uh, I am rocking and rolling and with you 100% of the way today. Um, man, life is just moving along at light speed, but it's going great. Um, I just looked at my calendar. I'm working 22 out of 30 days in the month of November 2018. December's looking almost as busy. I got a full plate of students and working on a variety of creative projects as well. Hopefully some of those I'll get to the point to be able to tell you uh, more about in in uh, detail. But uh, I did want to point out a few gigs that I'm doing coming up in November. Um, I Some of you may have seen that I've been touring with this incredible Swedish uh, singer, multi-instrumentalist, dancer named Gunhilde Carling. She's insane. She's amazing. Um, I've been working with her now pretty steadily for the last year off and on. And uh, we are doing three shows on the East Coast. Uh, the 12th of November in at Blues Alley in Washington, D.C. We had a couple of sold-out shows there um, earlier this year. Maybe it was last year. But uh, anyway, we'll be back there November 12th, November 13th. At the Bickford Theater in Morristown, New Jersey. Great little theater. And at the uh, Regatta Bar in Boston on the 15th, sorry, the 14th of November. Um, those are three dates. If you're in those areas, I can't recommend enough coming to see Gunhild. She's insane. Look her up on YouTube. Gunhild, it's like Gunhilda, but without the A. Uh, and Carling is her last name, C-A-R-L-I-N-G. She literally plays three trumpets at once. She plays the trumpet, balances it on her nose or her, her embouchure, her lips, while she's playing the bass. Uh, she plays jazz bagpipes. She's just incredible. And um, I've been really stoked to be playing with her. Um, so anyway, those dates are coming up. I'm also going to be playing for three nights with the one and only legendary Marilyn May, 90 years young, um, I've been working with her a lot for the last five, six years, mostly a lot of stuff around New York, but we're going to be three nights in Philadelphia area at Dino's Backstage, uh, which is, um, I think I want to say Kes, Keswick area. It's just outside Philadelphia. Three nights there, November 15, 16, and 17. And then I'm going to be seven nights with Marilyn May at 54 Below here in New York City, November 18th through 24th. Um, and if you haven't seen Marilyn May, she's sensational, literally one of the best performers I've ever worked with in my entire life. And, um, the woman is a a phenom. She's an incredible singer, an incredible storyteller, incredible, um, everything. So I just wanted to help you guys to those dates coming up. 
Uh, I should have those up on the website. I've been really bad this year about updating my website. I've been too busy to update my website to let people know what I'm doing. But I'm also going to send out a newsletter tomorrow. Uh, If you're not on my newsletter list, go to my website. You could sign up there. Send me an email. Say, I want to be on your list. Here's my email. Whatever you want. Um, Get in touch with me. I think I'm going to send out a newsletter tomorrow. All right. On that note, today... I am going to talk, I'm going to tell a a story. Sometimes I get up and tell stories about my past in the music business. And today's story is um, sort of a follow-up to a previous episode that I did here uh, on Drummer's Resource, where I talked about uh, one week in 1996, uh, working with uh, Royal Crown Review back in the day. and this actually was episode 320 on Drummer's Resource. It was called One Week in 1996. And I described that was a very intense period. Royal Crown Review was just really coming up. Um, we were touring endlessly at that time. And in a one-week period that year, we opened for both Neil Diamond and Kiss. Um, totally insane uh, that was the story of our life back then. So that's a fun episode because I really get into what life was like in Royal Crown Review and what we were doing and how we um, had this crazy week and what that was all about. Uh, I promised at that time, and that was recorded quite a while ago, um, I believe in 2000, not sure exactly when, but uh, it. Um, I promised at that time I would tell another story about Gene Simmons. And the reason is that uh, Royal Crown Review reconnected with Gene. Uh, that was in 1996. Eight years later, in 2008, we reconnected with Gene and ended up uh, being a part of his television show, uh, Gene Simmons' Family Jewels, for a three-episode arc. And so I wanted to talk about that uh, today. And before I go any further, I should tell you that if you want to watch the three episodes, you can download them. Uh, digitally, uh, I think it's on Amazon.com. I will put the link in the show notes. It's season three, episodes five, six, and seven, and um, it's a it's a fun watch. Of course, the show was very popular, um, and it was a ridiculous reality show. There was very little that was real about it. The whole thing was very scripted, but uh, it was it was fun. Gene Simmons, of course, quite the character quite the personality, but if you love him or hate him, uh, this this little side, this little story arc uh, was really cool, and it to me, it revealed a lot of other sides of Gene Simmons beyond the ones that we uh, see in the media or that we, that we think when we think of Gene Simmons, uh, God of Thunder with Kiss uh, and all that stuff. So uh, the, the, the beginnings of this story actually go back to that previous episode um, where, where we first open for KISS in 1996, and what made that really unique, we were really kind of right place, right time, is that they were in the middle of a very, very long tour. Of course, that was the, the reunion tour. All the original members got back together, put the makeup back on, and I believe the two shows we did, which were in Omaha, Nebraska, were shows 85 and 86, and I mentioned this in the previous episode, but the 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 tour already, you know, 85 shows in, and of course, KISS really hardcore businessmen, Gene and Paul really driving driving the train, um, and the, the, uh, the, the, the crew was burnt. You know, it, they'd been on the road for quite a while. And literally, I remember 
we were, you know, talking to the crew, and they they had said that so many lighting directors had come and gone, had been hired and fired, that they no longer had names. They were just referring to the lighting director by number. So I think they were up to lighting director 14 or something like that. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> in any case, the crew was was burnt. They were exhausted. They were kind of close to mutiny. And because we were in Omaha, the um, it wasn't, you know, a, a huge uh, urban center. The... Um, the the band decided that you know they they were staying maybe close enough to where uh the crew was they decided to throw a a party for the crew at the crew hotel and all four members of the band showed up as a sign of goodwill so you know it was open bar lots of food and stuff and being that we had been the opening band we were invited so we kind of got to meet the members of kiss and it turns out that their management had kind of raved to them about us. The whole story of how we got to open for them is, is in that other podcast. Um, and so we kind of connected. And we went, you know, our separate ways after that. But we sort of stayed in touch with them. We went back to um, we went back to our gig at the Derby when, whenever we were in L.A., which was getting less and less frequent the more we were on the road. I think Gene Simmons came down to see us one time. Um, I remember years later... Um, our trumpet player, I believe, was playing a benefit. You know, that there are these schools in Los Angeles, Brentwood, and, and these super fancy areas, Malibu, uh, where a lot of celebrities' children go to school. And they, you know, the celebs will, will pull out all the stops and they have these huge fundraisers. So I, I think our trumpet player was on one of these. And he, uh, Gene's kids at the time, were uh sorry took a drink there uh we're going to this school so gene said hey remember, uh, our trumpet player scott said remember me you know something to do with i i was involved with um royal crown review and gene remembered us and he said yeah you know i think there might be something that um i can i can use you guys for so we were intrigued so now this was of course 2008 um and gene's reality show has has taken off uh, it's 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 a huge hit. This they're up to the third season, so we get this call. Gene wants to have a meeting with you, so we go to Gene's house, which is up in the Hollywood Hills, uh, off of um, Mulholland Drive, and um, you know you have to give a secret password to get in through the gate and all this kind of stuff. And we 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 go in and have a meeting with Gene Simmons. Kind of amazing. I think three or four of us from the band went. And um, for those of you who have seen the show, a lot of it takes place in Gene's office in his house. Now, this is not just an ordinary office. Uh, this is a room that has maybe 20 or 30 foot high ceilings. It's a very large room, you know, because it's Gene Simmons. 30 foot high ceilings and, f- you know, floor to ceiling covering all the walls is Kiss memorabilia of every kind. From, you know, uh, action figures to lunch boxes to, um, you know, the Kiss coffin. Uh, there actually is a Kiss coffin that you can be buried in. For those of you who are fans of the metal band Pantera, both the drummer Vinnie Paul, who, you know, just died a few months ago, uh, and his brother Dimebag Daryl, who was infamously shot to death while on stage, uh, both brothers were buried in Kiss coffins donated by Gene Simmons. So, random trivia fact, random Kiss trivia fact there. But um, anyway, we're in this in this in this huge office, and we sat sit down with Gene, and he says he says, "Fellas, uh, you may not be aware of this, but 
I'm a huge fan of the music that that you play. Uh, when I was a young man growing up, obviously, I mean, I didn't know this, but Kiss's biggest influence, or at least Gene Simmons, was the Beatles. No surprise. You know, he grew up at a time when, uh, you know, he probably saw the Ed Sullivan show in the mid-60s um, as, a, as a young man. Uh, everybody was influenced by the Beatles, but he also said that he was really influenced by um, uh, art, rhythm and blues artists like Laverne Baker, Roy Hamilton, Jackie Wilson. Uh, and rockabilly music. And we were kind of surprised to hear this. But if you actually go and listen to the first couple of Kiss records, the first Kiss record even, they really don't sound like the band that they ended up becoming. Uh, They sound like a band that has some more of these kind of earlier influences, I would say. And their sound is really, really cool. I think those first couple Kiss records, I love Kiss, by the way, uh, unabashedly. And I talk about how we got to go see Kiss front row center during that week in 1996, how they got us tickets. And it was an amazing experience. And I was, you know, when I was a kid, uh, Kiss was, you know, they were huge in 1975, six, seven. So I have fond memories of Kiss. I've never been like a super fan, but I've always enjoyed their music. So anyway, I was pleasantly surprised that they, in turn, were fans of the music that we were playing. And Gene said, so I've got this thing that I want to do on my show. I want to go do like a rhythm and blues review in Las Vegas. And I want you guys to be my backing band. And we thought, Damn, that's cool. You know, how exciting. So um, we had this meeting at his house, and we agreed to get the business rolling and everything. And then we began to uh, uh, decide what material we're working on, uh, how we were going to do it. Of course, we had to come up with horn arrangements. We supplemented our band. Our band was a seven-piece group, uh, guitar, bass, drums, three horns, uh, um, alto sax, uh, alto slash Barry sax tenor player and a trumpet player. And um, he wanted to supplement it with a piano player, a second trumpet, um, and uh, three backup singers and a, pia- and a piano player, if I haven't said that. So in any case, we had to create all these arrangements of these songs and get to work on all of this. Uh, so indeed we did. And then the, <laughs> you know, it, it, the, the circus began, so to speak. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, but it's just you get caught up in this whole world of reality TV and, um, you know, what working with Gene Simmons is all about. Now, before I go any further, I should mention that, you know, we had some trepidation about working with Gene Simmons because, um, as, as many of you know, he is famously difficult to deal with, uh, can be a uh, something of a tyrant, uh, something of a... Of a uh, a brutal person. Uh, you've heard stories about uh, Eric Carr, who was uh, the drummer in Kiss after Peter Chris left, and apparently he was really uh, rudely taken to task um, and and sort of razzed as the new member. Um, sadly, Eric Carr, you know, died only a, a year or two into his tenure of a weird heart condition, and he was his replacement was Eric Singer, who is <clears throat> still in the band today, uh, except for that brief period where. Uh, where the original members came back together for a couple of years. So Eric Singer has actually been in Kiss longer than Peter Chris, the original drummer. And Eric, um, Eric's, a good, Eric's a great guy. He's actually been on this podcast. Uh, I interviewed him about a bunch of his influences. We didn't actually talk about Kiss at all. But uh, it, it was a... Um, it, you know, I, Eric is a tough dude. He grew up uh, in 
Cleveland. He's kind of salt of the earth, Midwestern boy. And uh, he, he can give as good as he can get. And I think it takes that kind of a personality to be in a band with someone like Gene Simmons. So uh, anyway, we'd heard these stories about Gene. Also, a, a good friend of mine co-wrote the theme to the uh, Family Jewels television show. He co-wrote the theme with Gene. And just that one experience, he did not have good things to say about Gene. And I've had some other friends who've had interactions with him. And, you know, so, you know, we were, we were, like I said, a little trepidatious. But surprisingly, at that meeting at his house, he was sweet as could be, very open. We had long conversations about his musical influences. He was really interested in what we were doing. And he was very respectful of us, uh, which was, again, a, a pleasant surprise and made me excited to, to continue uh, this process. So, you know, it's funny, though, he was definitely Gene Simmons because he kept saying things like, you know, boys, you're going to get on TV and this is going to be, you know, a huge deal for your career and you're really going to, you know, and we're sort of going, yeah, um, we've been around for a long time now. You know, the band had been around almost 20 years at that point and it, I, we were under no illusions that this was somehow going to turn our career uh, around or, or make it, uh, you know, make it an enormous difference. Um, certainly, though, it was something that we wanted to do. But, you know, we knew that this was about Gene, and he was not going to cede much of his camera time to the likes of us. But needless to say, the first experiences were, were cool. And um, so we ended up now having a rehearsal, and we went to the Musicians' Union in Los Angeles, down on Vine Street. Uh, they have rehearsal spaces there, and we're going to meet with Gene. Now, this is the first sort of example of Gene Simmons meets Royal Crown Review in terms of his approach and work ethic and our approach and work ethic. Now, Royal Crown Review, I should say, was a hard-working band, and we really put it out on stage. But like so many musicians, we often tended to, shall I say, uh, you know, the old maxim, if you want to be on time, get there 15 minutes early. Or if you're, if you're not there 15 minutes early, then you're late. Well, we were more like, if you barely get there on time or you're 10 minutes late, that's on time. Not unlike a lot of musicians. And I've definitely struggled with... Um, being tardy over the years, and I've really cleaned it up in the last few years, especially now working the kind of gigs that I do. I just played Carnegie Hall a couple weeks ago, and when they say downbeat for rehearsal is at 1 p.m., that means downbeat is at 1 p.m., not show up at 1. So you get there at 12, and you make sure that you have time to get the kit together and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, but this was back in 08. I'd been in this band for a long time. We all kind of knew we could get away with stuff and well, you know, what we're going to do, fire each other. So <laughs> I remember I was the first, we had a 5 p.m. rehearsal. I was the first one to the musicians union and uh, it was, you know, five. So it was, I guess, uh, you know, d dusk is falling and I see framed in the doorway, the very large six foot, whatever, two, three, four frame of Gene Simmons blocking the door. And I realized that at five o'clock, I was the first person of the band to arrive for a five o'clock rehearsal. So needless to say, I got a bit of a lecturing uh, at that point. Um, but anyway, we, we did have a great time. We rehearsed with Gene, and the tunes we ended up doing were actually some of the songs that, uh, or the artists that I had mentioned earlier, his influences. Uh, we did the song Don't Let Go by Roy Hamilton, which is a great 50s R&B tune. 
I'm sure it's one of those tunes you may not recognize the title, but if you go listen to it, again, I'll put a link to it, uh, <clears throat> you'll recognize the song. Uh, we also did uh, Jim Dandy to the Rescue, which originally was a tune by Laverne Baker, the famous uh, Atlantic Records R&B artist. I'd actually played on a Women in the Blues festival with her on my very first tour. I was touring with a blues artist named Debbie Davies, and Laverne Baker was the uh, headliner on that festival. It was all female blues artists, and it was at San Jose State. I remember that back in 1993, my very first real tour. And I got to hang with Laverne Baker, who was uh, died just a year or two later. Um, so that was a cool experience. So Laverne Baker, and instead of it being called Jim Dandy to the rescue, of course, Gene Simmons called it Gene Daddy to the rescue. So, uh, you know, it all... <laughs> It all uh, it all comes back to Gene, but it was a great song for him to sort of hey girls and you know kind of do all this kind of trash talking about Gene Daddy to the rescue, uh, and then um, we did a, a Jackie Wilson tune called Baby Workout, uh, which was a great tune. It had a lot of kind of call response in it. Uh, Gene calls out the band calls back to him so um that was phase one was the rehearsal and that went really well and then phase two uh we got to actually record all of these songs with gene and this was kind of an amazing experience because we did the recording at the former a&m studios uh the famous a&m studios again in hollywood i think i think it's on vine street i don't know i left la eight years ago and now i can't remember where anything is but it's now called the henson studios after jim henson and uh, I had not done a session in this room. I had done a session at the studio. It's a whole complex of of studios. So the room we were in was the room that they recorded the song We Are the World, you know, the famous anthem of the 80s, uh, you know, raising money for, for Africa. Um, and uh, um, it was an incredible experience working with Gene uh, on these songs. I think we recorded four songs, but for some reason I can only remember three of them at this point. And I have the demos, but unfortunately, as much as I would like to release them, uh, I don't think uh, that's a good idea, legally speaking. Um, now, the idea was, even though we were, we were um, performing these songs live on the television show and we would do it in Las Vegas, um, we recorded them in advance. And then what we would... Then what we would uh, would be doing on the show was actually playing along with our own tracks. And while I thought this was kind of a weird thing to do, actually, Gene had done some other kinds of recordings for the TV show, and it was a very smart move on his part. Basically, the idea was that we would have the tracks on low in our headphones, or I would at least, a lot of the pressure fell to me because I was the one who had to keep the time and lock with the track. Uh, and then when they mixed the, the television show, they would mix the two together, the studio recording and the live recording, so that no matter how good or bad the live recording actually came out, uh, it would sound huge because it would be mixed with the original studio recording. So um, I ended up, it was a, a lot of pressure for me because I had to go and practice along with these tracks until I could play them exactly the same way, um, you know, uh, both times so that when, when we got up and did it live, it was going to, it was going to be perfect. So, um, we record in, at, in A&M studios and Gene produced the sessions. Now, you know, we, we think of Gene as the bass player, singer in Kiss, 
songwriter, of course, but, but you don't realize that he actually is an excellent producer as well. And he's actually had produced a lot of bands and discovered a lot of bands along the way. Most infamously, by the way, uh, being Van Halen. Uh, when they were still young high school kids playing in Pasadena in the mid-70s, before they you know, had their big break, Gene Simmons uh, was interested in signing them. They were a young up-and-coming band, and he actually made some demos with them, and you can, I believe you can go on YouTube, and you can find these demos of Gene Simmons producing Van Halen. But he also had done a lot of other acts over the years, and he was, of course, had been in the business by this point for, you know, 40-plus years, so very knowledgeable around the studio. He had great engineers there, and he really did a fantastic job of producing these sessions. I was, I was very impressed by that. Uh, of course, another side of Gene emerged, his, his famous uh, cheap side. Uh, and, uh, you know, he provided lunch for us that day, but it was something along... It wasn't quite Subway, but it was something like that. Um, and his excuse, of course, was that there are no budgets in reality television. Uh, and so, you know, also, we were not... We, we really didn't get paid very much for this experience, nor did we get any residuals or royalties. Um, and again, you know, that's fine, but it, it, it was just hilarious. It's like, boys, let's break for lunch. Here's the subway menu, you know. So in any case, uh, you know, there's a reason why that guy is as wealthy as he is. He knows, he knows how, to, how to work the system. But I don't, I don't hold that against him at all. We, were, we knew we, we were not doing this to get rich. We were in this for the experience and the, op- the um, experience of recording it at this incredible studio, working with Gene, uh, being part of this project was was worth its weight in gold in in my uh, estimation. So the next step was uh, we're going to fly to Las Vegas. Um, before that, though, I have to tell a story that somewhere along the way during this process so far, before we went to Vegas, I got the best uh, uh, best phone message on my cell phone ever left to me. And and when I say the best, I don't necessarily mean it that way, but let's just let me put it this way. I got bitched out by Gene Simmons in a phone message. Um now I look back on it and laugh. At the time I wasn't laughing so much because it was pretty scary. Um what it the reason for this phone call was that <clears throat> at the time Royal Crown Review was between managers. Uh we were just bringing on board a new manager and uh, so we were in this transition. So the um, business was being handled by myself, but also by our singer, Eddie. And it was unclear who was the contact person. So, you know, they were trying to call Eddie. They were trying to call me. The new manager was already on the scene, but he sort of came in kind of halfway through this. So it was a very confusing, um, <clears throat> a very confusing uh, moment. So something got turned around in the negotiations. And um, like I said, we weren't being offered very much money, but we had seven people in the band that we had to, you know, they were sort of giving us a block grant, I guess you could say, and we had to pay uh, everybody out of this and pay for the arrangements and, you know, all these different things. We had to pay the side men in the band, all that kind of stuff. So in any case, something went haywire. I get, I, I, you know, look on my phone there's a message. I, I, I open up the message, and it went along the lines of this. Dan, this is Gene Simmons. You need to call me immediately at XXX, whatever, whatever, whatever. 
we have a huge problem here. It's come to my attention that Royal Crown Review is making more demands than Led Zeppelin. And I should know, I worked with Led Zeppelin. Now, this is absurd, and if you're not willing to come to the table immediately, uh, then you can consider this deal over and done. I've done deals with a lot bigger names than you, and, you know, I don't, I don't need to deal with this. So, uh, there it was, the famous Gene Simmons hardline negotiator uh, in my face. And uh, I was, it worked, man. My heart was pumping and my mouth got dry when I, when I listened to his, his message. So, of course, we got it figured out. It wasn't as if we were negotiating a multi-million dollar deal. But um, what upsets me is that I, when I, I, of course, kept the message. But this is a little earlier in the generation of cell phones. I think I had a flip phone. And I never saved a message uh, or held on to it so that when I went to turn that phone in and got a new phone, the message died with the phone. And it just kills me because I, you can bet I would be playing that message uh, as part of this podcast right now. So I, I did my best. But I just love the line, Royal Grand Review is making more demands than Gene Simmons and I should know, than, than Led Zeppelin. And I should know because I worked with Led Zeppelin. And I, I don't doubt it. I mean, Kiss in the 70s, uh, I remember the, you know, the band Rush opened for Kiss. Uh, I'm sure that Kiss and Led Zeppelin had had doings with each other along the way. So um, anyway, it's it's just a, a hilarious side note to this whole thing. So things are kind of getting crazy. You know, uh, all these plans are being made. Uh, money is still fishy, um, you know, and we're moving closer and closer towards the date of, of this episode. Now, w- what I should say is uh, that what actually transpired in terms of us doing the gig was not what was presented in the show. So um, I'll, t- I'll tell you about what we actually did, and then I'll tell you about what you'll see if you go ahead and, and buy these episodes. And again, I should mention they are $1.99 each. Totally hilarious. Three of them that'll cost you a total of $6. Well worth, uh, well worth your time to, to see how this, how this all transpired. Um, but let's talk about the flight to Vegas first. So the idea was... We, in Vegas, we played at um, at the Hard Rock Cafe, which is a great venue, a uh, great venue to see a show. Royal Crown Review had headlined there several times, and, um, you know, it was one of our favorite places to stay in Las Vegas because it was full of music memorabilia, and in a town where even the coolest casino is just so cheesy, the Hard Rock actually was cool and had some vibe to it. So Gene was was playing there. Now, he didn't have his own show because we were only performing three songs. So we jumped on to this show called Beecher's Madhouse. I think it was a comedian. Uh, I think his name was Jeff Beecher. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. Um, but he would, once a month, put on a show in Las Vegas at the Hard Rock called Beecher's Madhouse. And it was sort of bringing out celebrities and having, you know, different music, comedy, uh, showgirls, people just basically uh, drinking too much and behaving badly in Las Vegas. And again, you'll get the vibe of what it was all about. You know, midgets or little people, I should say, dancing around. I mean, like, kind of crass. 
and uh, there would be special guests each each time that they did this Beecher's Madhouse. So that that was what we were we were part of Beecher's Madhouse. So um, and they were going to of course then film that for the reality show, and uh, that's how it was going to work. So we. Um, we flew from, I remember we flew from Burbank Airport, which is a small, smaller airport than LAX, much easier to negotiate, and we're just a southwest hop away from Las Vegas, so it's a one-hour flight. And good old Gene, he doesn't take a private jet, although he easily could have afforded it, he flies on Southwest with us. There's no first class on Southwest, there's no upgrades, um, so we're, <laughs> we're meeting Gene, and it's of course like the 6 a.m. flight. And so, you know, the band straggles in. We're all literally running through the airport to try to make the flight on time. And there's Gene, you know, looking at his watch like, boys, how many, you know, you're never going to make it in this business unless, unless you learn how to be somewhere on time. So he's standing there. Now, meanwhile, because this is L.A. and there's always celebrity sightings in L.A., nobody's really paying much attention to him. So a couple of people asking him for his autograph on the airplane. He was real low pro. Interestingly... When we landed in Vegas, and this is Gene Simmons, the master media manipulator. So he doesn't make a big deal when he's in, in, in L.A. at the Burbank Airport, and nobody makes a big deal about him. We land. He has four state troopers meeting him at the airport. So now people see four troopers surrounding somebody, and they start to crowd and pretty soon, when you see someone starting to crowd, and it's Las Vegas, so everybody thinks, you know, what's going on? Um, now uh, the crowd grows, and suddenly it's a media circus with Gene leading the way, surrounded by four state troopers. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking, man, this guy, he he gets it. He's really smart about how he promotes his image. Of course, even though we're on the same plane, we may as well have been in another universe than him. And, of course, we arrive... Uh, we get our bags and whatnot, and he goes in a huge limo <laughs> you know, to the hotel, and we've got the 15-passenger van picking us up, which, again, is fine. Uh, he is the star, after all. But I thought that part of the experience was very interesting as well, and how you know he chose to um, present himself. Obviously, he f- hired the four state troopers uh, and turn the whole thing into into a spectacle. So then people are like, oh, Gene Simmons is in town. Oh, we got to find out what he's doing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So very, very interesting. So now uh, we flash forward to the Hard Rock. We're all staying at the Hard Rock. And um, we uh, had the sound check that day. The band sounded great. We had all the backup singers, everything. There's a couple showgirls, of course. Gene choreographs the whole thing. Um, they get, they, they choreograph a, uh, at least one girl running up on stage and attacking Gene. So, you know, again, it, if you watch the actual performance, it looks like this happened spontaneously. There was nothing spontaneous about it. There are, you know, beautiful Vegas-style women with fake boobs, you know, pretty much almost flashing the camera. And all of this was totally, totally staged. And, of course, Jeff Beecher pumped up the crowd. You're going to be on camera. Go crazy. You know, this and that and the other. So it looks fantastic uh, on the uh, on the. Uh, when you watch the episode. Um, so uh, let, me, let me switch now. And so that, that was it. We flew in. We did the show. Uh, we went home. We said, thank you, Gene. Great experience. And we waited for it to come out. We watched it. We had a great time with it. Didn't do anything for our career. 
Uh, not that we expected it to, but we, it was a great experience. Now, when you watch the show, the, the, the arc that they weave is hilarious because it makes it seem like Gene drives to Vegas separately from the band, and along the way, his car breaks down. Now, if you've ever driven from Los Angeles to Vegas, the whole way is at least three or four lanes of large interstate, Interstate 15. Uh, But amazingly, the route that Gene takes is uh, some kind of two-lane road in the middle of the desert, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, And his, his, I think he takes an RV or something, and the RV breaks down or he gets anyway he he ends up hitchhiking and he gets picked up by some strange kiss fans and he's gets waylaid and finally uh you know time it's it's getting desperate the show is 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 going to happen he's still out of town so he calls his friend Caratop who of course has a long running comedy show in Vegas uh for those of you who haven't seen Caratop recently prepare to be shocked he's totally pumped up uh, looks like he's totally steroided, like he had uh, uh, muscle implants put in. Uh, he's got like the permanent eyeliner, uh, you know, um, uh, put into his his eyes. I mean, he looks like a total freak of plastic surgery, uh, which I think was kind of his goal. Anyway, he comes out in his Hummer and picks up Gene in the middle of the desert and brings him into Vegas. And then, of course, Gene hops up on stage and we do the show. One of the cool things about it is that when they did the show, uh, they had us play one of our numbers, The Contender, which is one of the more well-known Royal Crown Review numbers. It's the title track of our of our second Warner Brothers album. Uh, and uh, he, uh, the idea was that we were going to stall the crowd, um, you know, during the uh, time that Gene is late to get there. And, of course, you know, so what's neat is there's us playing The Contender, uh, there's some old crotchety uh, Broadway Danny Rose style, uh, you know, crotchety New York Jewish um, like uh, manager, producer guy who's the one that was going to. The idea was that this was a test run to see if Gene would do a regular Vegas show, which, of course, he had no intention of doing. Um, but this guy was going to be the one to put that on. So he's like, Gene, you got to call me. This is ridiculous. Where the hell are you? And then he, and then there's a scene where we're, you know, there. And, and actually, I get one second on camera. I'm like, I don't know. We can't find Gene anywhere. And he says, yeah, all right, you guys better get out there. Otherwise, the crowd's going to tear this place apart. So we go out and we play the contender. And you could hear then as Gene is traveling with Carrot Top, you can see and hear they do a lot of split screen stuff, us playing the contender in the background. So that's sort of the story arc. And um, that was our experience with Gene Simmons. And it was a lot of fun. It was uh, everything you would have expected and a lot that I didn't expect, which was, you know, the fact that Gene was, was, you know, and he was not in his comfort zone. Um, By the end of the experience, he's sounding like Gene Simmons, but I think this was definitely a stretch for him. And that's cool, you know, that... Uh, after all these years that uh, of sort of you know doing what they do best, um, both he and and Paul Stanley, the other leader of Kiss, have done some interesting things. Uh, Eric Singer was part of a solo project of Paul Stanley's a few years ago, where Paul um, did a tribute to Motown, and he put together a real Motown style band uh, and played a bunch of his favorite Motown songs. Um, 
that sounded like the record and really great show. And Eric was telling me about being a part of that. Eric Singer, the drummer, uh, being a part of that show, and he was having a great time with that. So kudos to to Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons for keeping it interesting and uh, giving, paying back, you know, helping to spread the word in their own way about the music that uh, influenced them. So that's my story about Gene Simmons. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope that you'll uh, let me know what you think about the podcast, about the Daniel Glass Show. Uh, please do send me an email uh, at daniel at danielglass.com. Uh, jump in to uh, the Daniel Glass uh, Drummer Author Educator page on Facebook, and uh, your feedback really is always appreciated. And of course, if you enjoy the Daniel Glass Show, then make sure you subscribe to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Uh, so thanks, and until next time, it is Daniel Glass. Keep swinging, and I look forward to uh, telling stories with you again. Be well. Be well.